Hi there, I'm Travis, and this is Why Is That, the podcast. Welcome back to Why Is That. Of all the high players this country ever sees, there is no doubt but that the guy they call the sky is the highest. There are only four of these mission workers, and two of them arch old guys, and one is an old doll, while the other is a young doll who is tootling on a cornet. And after a couple of ganders at this young doll, Sky is a goner, for this is one of the most beautiful young dolls anybody ever sees on Broadway, and especially as a mission worker. Her name is Miss Sarah Brown. The introductory clip comes from the 1955 film adaptation of Guys and Dolls, and the two quotations I just read comes from the 1933 short story by Damon Runyon, The Idol of Sarah Brown, of which the musical was partially based. The show originally premiered on Broadway in 1950 and was critically acclaimed. It won the Tony Award for Best Musical, Best Performance by a Leading Actor in a Musical, Best Performance by a Leading Actress in a Musical, Best Choreography, and Best Direction of a Musical at the 5th Tony Awards in 1951, and then it won the Best Revival in 1992. John Chapman, who was a critic for 51 years, specialized as a drama critic for 25 years with the Daily News, and was the president of the New York Drama Critics Circle from 1949 to 1951, had this to say about the musical in his November 25, 1950 review. In all departments, Guys and Dolls is a perfect musical comedy. The show has had a lasting cultural impact with its memorable numbers such as Luck Be a Lady, A Bushel and a Peck, I've Never Been in Love Before, and Sit Down, You're Rockin' the Boat. Today, though, we are primarily concerned with the title of the show, Guys and Dolls. Why is it that we use the term guy to refer informally to a man and the term doll to refer informally to a woman? We'll tackle both separately as beyond the title of the legendary musical, they are not really related. Before we get into guys or dolls, I do want to stay on guys and dolls for a moment longer in order to talk about the song Luck Be a Lady. They call you Lady Luck, but there is room for doubt. At times you have a very unladylike way of running out. These words are the opening lyrics to the song, and it does a lovely job of painting the picture of a woman controlling the fortunes of man. Where did this idea of luck as a woman originate, and why do we use such imagery? It's the Wheel of Fortune! You have likely heard of this game, as it is the longest-running syndicated game in the United States, and a very iconic one at that. One of the key aspects of the game is to spin a wheel, which results in the player earning different amounts of money, losing a turn, or even going bankrupt. It is all contained on this single wheel of fortune, both good and bad outcomes, all determined by this little wheel of fate. Do you have good luck or bad luck? You can find out with a simple spin of the wheel. The format of the game is pretty simple, and the ease of injecting some randomness into the game via the wheel is of crucial importance in keeping the audience engaged throughout the game. The reason I bring up this game, though, is not to get you in the mood to solve a word puzzle. It is instead to cast a spotlight on that very wheel of chance. A wheel is an easy tool to use in many games, and a play on the word fortune, as players can win a fortune by playing, is a great component. But the imagery of a wheel of fortune is actually thousands of years old. In Cicero's Invective Against Piso, in Pisonum, he had this to say, 
The house of your colleague rang with song and cymbals, while he himself danced naked at a feast, wherein, even while he executed his whirling gyrations, he felt no fear of the wheel of fortune. The invention of the wheel in general is often depicted in caveman cartoons as one of the seminal events in human history. The inventor of the wheel, or culture where the wheel first appeared, is a highly debated topic and one that we shall not venture into today. The idea of the wheel representing a symbol of chance, fortune, or luck is more recent than the Neolithic Age invention. Stanley Lehman Gulpin, an early 20th century historian, and medieval historians in general, believe that it was the Romans who first depicted the Wheel of Fortune. David M. Robinson, a mid-20th century historian, instead contends that the Greeks created the concept. Either way, it was a common concept of ancient-slash-classical philosophies. Some suggest it even had become a cliché by the time of Tacitus. In Latin, the wheel was known as the Rota Fortunae, and was used as a symbol of the capricious nature of fate. It was the tool and symbol of their goddess Fortuna. Fortuna is thought to have received her name from the Latin phrase Rotunna, meaning she who turns the year about, or she who brings chance. The Latin proverb, fortune favors the bold, would be meant that Fortuna favors the bold. She was the deliverer of chance, and she is the original Lady Luck. As noted, David M. Johnson posits that the Wheel of Fortune originated with the Greeks, and the Greeks similarly had a goddess of fate, luck, and fortune named Taichi. Fortuna is the Roman equivalent of the Greek Taichi. As all Greek gods and goddesses did, Taichi certainly had an impact on the depiction of Fortuna, but it should be noted that Fortuna is originally an Etruscan deity. Romans disagreed whether it was the legendary 4th king Ancus Marcius or the 6th king Servius Tullius who first introduced her to Rome. As both are legendary kings, the one who actually introduced Fortuna to Rome is not all that important and instead speaks to a belief that she was introduced somewhere from 642 to 535 BCE. The first temple to Fortuna is generally attributed to being built specifically at the order of Servius Tullius. This timeline would point to an independent development of the goddess Fortuna from the Greek Taichi. However, the Romans, Etruscans, and Greeks all have links to the Indo-Europeans, so it is possible that the goddess of fate, chance, luck, and fortune existed prior to the emergence of any of these later groups. Despite this question of the origin of the goddess of luck and the concept of the Wheel of Fortune, our modern concept of Lady Luck is for certain due to the Roman goddess Fortuna. The goddess Fortuna and her Wheel of Fortune were absorbed from the Romans into Western medieval thought. A key individual in this absorption was Boethius. Boethius lived from 477 to 524 CE. He grew up in Ostrogothic Italy in the years immediately following the deposition of the last Western Roman emperor, but still firmly in the days of at least apparent Ostrogothic subservience to the Eastern Roman Empire. In Dante's Divine Comedy, he described Boethius as the last of the Romans and first of the Scholastics. Around the time of his death, he published the Consolation of Philosophy, which is a treatise on fortune, death, and other issues. It has been described as the single most important and influential work on Western medieval and early Renaissance Christianity and thought. In it, he has the following quote, Having entrusted yourself to fortune's dominion, you must conform to your mistress's ways. What, are you trying to halt the motion of her whirling wheel? Dimmest of fools that you are, you must realize that if the wheel stops turning, it ceases to be the course of chance. 
Boethius's work and popularity guaranteed that Fortuna would never be forgot and would forever be associated with luck. The incarnation of luck and fortune has then long been that of Fortuna, and as Fortuna is a female, we have Lady Luck. Luck is certainly a lady, though I'm not sure if I would classify her as a doll. Doll, an attractive young woman, often with connotations of unintelligence and frivolity. Well, that is the Google definition anyways. Doll as a word to refer to women originally entered the English lexicon as a nickname for Dorothy. English nickname conventions get pretty wild, and even the strangest ones usually have some sort of rhyme or reason behind it, with the reason sometimes being that it rhymes. In the case of Doll from Dorothy, it combines shortening and letter substitution, specifically substituting the R for an L. R for L substitutions are fairly common in nicknames, as the letters are what we call liquid consonants. The R in Dorothy and the L in Doll are voice lateral approximants as they are produced when the airstream proceeds along the sides of the tongue but is blocked by the tongue from going through the middle of the mouth. As a result, the letters feel very similar inside our mouths and therefore make sense as substitutes for one another. As an example, pay attention to the way your mouth feels when you say door as in Dorothy and doll. Door, doll. Door, doll. They feel quite similar, but the L sounds more natural as a way to end a nickname, as the L is a lateral phoneme and the R is a rotate phoneme. The same phenomenon is found in nicknames such as Sally for Sarah, Molly for Mary, Hal for Harold and Henry. The Hal for Henry is famously found in William Shakespeare's play Henry IV Part 1 and 2 to refer to the young Prince Hal who would grow up to become Henry V of England. This play was written no later than 1597 and testifies to the popularity of this practice. Doll for Dorothy was in common use by the early 1500s. From the nickname, it transformed into an endearing name for a female pet or mistress by the 1550s. The exact meaning of doll then shifted slightly over the next 150 years. It always referred to a female, but in the 1610s it was likely to mean sweetheart, mistress, or paramour, and then by the 1640s, it had degenerated to refer to a slattern, a slattern being a dated noun to refer to a dirty and untidy woman. Due to that degeneration, it then fell out of use in polite company, but made a comeback as a general term to refer to a child's toy baby around the turn of the 18th century. Doll to mean a child's toy, typically the toy being a depiction of a small female child or baby, has remained in use ever since. As an example, you can imagine the American Girl dolls. The baby doll toy then gave the term doll new life as it transferred back to living beings by 1778. In this sense, it had taken on the quality of the toy as it came to be used to describe a pretty silly woman. By the mid-20th century, when our musical premiered, the term doll had come full circle to be used as either an endearing name for a young woman or a patronizing one. This is the definition that remains with us today, although doll is not as popular as it had been 70 years ago. I mean, even Lola Bunny hates it when you call her doll. Patronizing side of the term doll and the general change in attitudes towards women since Guys and Dolls first premiered has inspired some to attempt to give the legendary musical an update. At the Guthrie Theater in Minneapolis, for example, Kent Gash is attempting to do just that in his current production of Guys and Dolls. I haven't seen it yet, so I cannot really say whether or not he has succeeded. 
That does it for the term doll, although studying the origin of doll did make me wonder about a different word that is commonly paired with guys, gals. It is believed that gal was derived from the word girl. Basically, a northern English accent turned the IR in girls into a sound that resembled an A. As those people interacted with others, it seemed like a new word, and thus gals was born. Pretty neat. On the flip side of it all, we have guys. Our modern definition of guy started its path as a given name for a male. It is believed to have started as an old high German name, but that name was not guy, instead it was Guido. Guido approximately translates as wood. It could be similar to naming a child Forrest Griffin or Forrest Gump, or it could have also been a nickname for people who had the word Guido or wood or wit or wide in their longer given name. The German name and nickname Guido is thought to have inspired the Italian name Guido. Alternatively, Guido could have originated as a name in Italian from the profession of a guide. In that case, guide and Guido would share the same cognate. The family name Guido is typically described as having the guide origin, similar to the way that we have Miller and Smith as last names that denote a profession. But it is possible that the first name and last name Guido could have different origins despite being pronounced and spelled the same. Guido grew in popularity as an Italian name and eventually worked its way into French and then English. The name moved into other languages in a variety of formats from Guyon, Gaillard, Guida, and several others. In France, the most popular for given names was a shortened version, that of Guy. The name slowly crept into England, but it did not receive widespread use. However, it was popular in Yorkshire after Richard Fairfax chose to name his third son Guy Fairfax in the early 1400s. Sir Guy Fairfax was an English judge, and while he is far from a household name today, he was rather popular in his day, and the Fairfax family held sway in the area. It has been suggested that several families from the Yorkshire area were inspired by Sir Guy and chose to name their new baby boys Guy. It is possible that Edward Fox and his wife Edith, two York natives, had the local notable in mind when Edith gave birth to a baby boy in 1570. This baby boy was Guy Fox. It is unlikely that I'll have another chance in the course of this podcast, so I'm just going to say it. Remember, remember, the 5th of November, of gunpowder, treason, and plot. I know of no reason why the gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. The guy behind the Guy Fox masks is our guy who gave Guy its meaning. Guy's maternal family were recusant Catholics. His father died when Guy was 8 years old, and after an acceptable mourning period, his mother remarried. His stepfather was another recusant Catholic, and through the influence of his family, Guy too became a recusant Catholic. It would take a long time to fully explain the significance of Guy's Catholic affiliation in Protestant England. Long story short is that Protestant England, especially in the late 1500s, had grown very unfavorable toward Roman Catholics, and this made Guy and Catholics like him very frustrated with and resentful of society. In 1591, Guy traveled to the European continent to join the Eighty Years' War on behalf of Catholic Spain against the Dutch Republic. While in Spain, Guy chose to adopt the Italian version of his name, Guido, for official communications. Eventually, he was convinced of the need for a Catholic rebellion in England, and after he could not secure any official support on the continent for his plan, he set off back to England to do it himself. Back in England, Guy joined a small band of English Catholics who were determined to assassinate the Protestant King of England, 
King James I. The plan and details get a little murky, but eventually the radical Catholic group decided to formulate a plan to blow up Parliament. A tunnel was found underneath Parliament, and in that tunnel they found a small undercroft. The conspirators rented that undercroft and slowly smuggled gunpowder into it through the tunnel. The first meeting of Parliament for the year had been delayed due to fear about the plague, and the opening date was eventually scheduled for Tuesday, November 5th, 1605. Mere hours before the plan was set to be carried out, Guy was found just outside the undercroft with a slow fuse. He was arrested and the gunpowder was found. Parliament was saved. Guy, though, was not. Guy was tortured endlessly in order to convince him to portray his co-conspirators. He was then tried, convicted of high treason, and sentenced to death. His execution saw him hanged, drawn, and quartered. After Guy was arrested, an announcement was made to the people of London about the would-be attempt on the king's life. The king's escape from assassination was viewed as a day of deliverance, and Londoners were encouraged to light bonfires in order to celebrate as long as the bonfires were safe. As Guy's trial occurred, Edward Montague drafted and introduced a bill into Parliament that called for a public annual thanksgiving for the failure of the plot. This bill passed and was known as the Observance of 5th November Act 1605. The act required church ministers to hold a special service of thanksgiving annually on the 5th of November and for all to attend in order to celebrate the day the king was delivered from the evil Catholic plot to doom England, Scotland, and Ireland. The act remained law until it was repealed in 1859 with the passage of Anniversary Days Observance Act 1859. It was repealed partially because violence towards Catholics in the 1850s was growing out of control. The celebration was brought back and regained its prominence in the 20th century, though much of its original focus has been replaced by the fact that it is just nice to gather around a bonfire and watch fireworks. The bonfire has been an important aspect of the 5th of November observance since the Londoners first celebrated the news of the failed plot. The observance was originally known as the 5th of November Observance Day or as Gunpowder Plot Day. It is unknown exactly when it became customary to burn an effigy of Guy Fawkes at the annual bonfires. Evidence shows that originally the effigy burned was that of the Pope or other prominent Catholics, and it was more of an anti-Catholic day rather than aimed particularly at Guy Fawkes. At the very latest, the Guy Fawkes effigy was burned regularly by 1790, and in the same time period it morphed from Gunpowder Plot Day to Guy Fawkes Night. The transformation is key to our story, as the effigy of Guy Fawkes is our next transition period. The effigy of Guy Fawkes was known to be grotesque, poorly dressed, and generally very ugly. It was paraded through the street by children on Guy Fawkes night and was then burned as part of the yearly ritual. The grotesque, poorly dressed effigy was known as the Guy. Do you know how sometimes the words friends use with one another are not all that nice? Like, maybe you want to approach your buddy and be like, hey, what's up, ugly? They might even reply, not much, stupid. It's a strange ritual because if someone who was not your friend called you ugly or stupid, you probably would be very mad. But when your friend does it, a person who supposedly cares about you and your feelings is a pretty funny joke and a warm greeting. Well, that is how Guy started. Do you know what is even better than referring to your friend as ugly or stupid? referring to them as both at the same time, plus inferring that they stink and are poorly dressed. Yep, friends and co-workers, particularly men, took the idea of a Guy Fawkes effigy as being grotesque, poorly dressed, and ugly as a great way to refer to one another. Saying the whole name, Guy Fawkes, was a bit too much, but Guy is nice and easy. 
The one-syllable word was the perfect way to call out for that friend who you just love a little too much to be nice to. With this explanation, you will not be surprised to learn that the practice originated with those we would describe as lower class. Your working class blokes who liked blowing off steam on Guy Fawkes night and liked calling their friends grotesque over a pint. Guy quickly spread from there, and it is attested to as referring to a poorly dressed person in British English by 1836, and had made the jump to just referring to a fellow in American English by 1847. It has remained an important informal turn for a man ever since. And that does it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed our exploration of Lady Luck, Guys, and Dolls. I know I sure did, and I look forward to sharing more whys with you in the future. Be sure to hit that subscribe button so you do not miss any upcoming episodes. The show is available on all major podcast apps, including Podcast Republic, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Acast, and many other locations. If you are feeling particularly generous, I would greatly appreciate it if you left the show a rating and a review. Thank you for listening to Why Is That. Until next time, cheers.